Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Episode 5 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's weekly awards podcast. I'm Scott Feinberg, the host, and I'm very pleased to be joined on this episode by the great Ridley Scott, the director behind so many uh, really terrific movies of our time, from Alien to Blade Runner to Thelma and Louise to Best Picture Oscar winner Gladiator, and most recently The Martian, which was the big hit movie of this past weekend, where it opened atop the box office and with great reviews. So we'll sit down with Sir Scott in a moment, but in the meantime, let's just recap what's happened since the last episode was was taped at the New York Film Festival. I'm now back in Los Angeles. The festival's still going on, but I wanted to be back here for The Hollywood Reporter's award season kickoff cocktail party, which sort of marks the beginning of the season here in Los Angeles. So far, it's been pretty much limited to far-flung festivals, whether it's Cannes, Telluride, Toronto, Venice, or most recently New York. But now it's starting to come back to LA. Uh, We're going to have more and more events and activities here. And The Martian is going to be part of that. Pseudo-events, as one scholar uh, referred to events that were created to generate publicity, are already starting to get underway. We've got the Hollywood Film Awards coming up not long from now, and the announcements, the rollout of their announcements of who their honorees will be has begun with Robert De Niro, the star of the upcoming Joy, tapped for the Career Achievement Award. Additionally, this weekend, Jane Fonda, the star of Youth and already a two-time Oscar winner, was honored with the Santa Barbara International Film Festival's Kirk Douglas Award, which is effectively also a Career Achievement Award. So those two vets are getting an early start on the season. And there's a sense that some films and people are starting to look like relatively safe bets for nominations. If you wouldn't call them necessarily a front runner in their category because there's no clear favorites, they are looking like they are at least going to be there through the duration. Those would include Spotlight, which is continuing to go over very, very well. It would also probably include Room, which won the Toronto Film Festival Audience Award, and a number of others. You've got the Danish Girls actors, lead actor Eddie Redmayne and supporting actress Alicia Vikander. Pretty much consensus choices at this point, along with Rooms Brie Larson and perhaps a few others. But the ideal situation for a movie is to be both commercially and critically successful. That certainly catapulted a lot of movies, including Gladiator, to award season success. And this year, only a few movies sort of fit that bill so far. There may be others to come, like Star Wars and Spectre, for all we know. But so far, the big ones have been Straight Out of Compton, Mad Max, Fury Road, and The Martian. And so I caught The Martian at the Toronto International Film Festival. It's since played at the New York Film Festival. Coincidentally, 
or, or perhaps not, coinciding with the announcement that water has been found on Mars. And again, it was the big hit of this past weekend, which really is marking something of a comeback for, for Ridley Scott, a, a director who's been on the scene for decades uh, and has so many great movies to his name. But the last few years have been sort of up and down. People weren't sure what to make of The Counselor, weren't crazy about Prometheus. A Good Year was mixed uh, for a lot of people. So this one is sort of universally liked. Whether or not it ends up being a big awards player remains to be seen, but it's a movie that people are excited about and behind. And so it's a treat to have Ridley Scott with us. And let's go to that conversation. Well, first of all, thank you for coming and doing this. It's uh, it's an honor to have you. We really appreciate it. And it's a big day for, for you, right? Always is. <laughs> the, the opening day. I, we had a night last night, I think, you know, they they did a what a midnight screening in various places, but uh, that bodes boded pretty well. Well, all, all you had to do was see it at the Toronto premiere to know that people go crazy for this movie. Yeah, it's really, yeah, yeah. and then New York. I was there with you guys when. Yeah. Uh, well, before we before we focus specifically yeah. on the Martian, I wonder if I can just ask you generally mm-hmm. a few things. And I think most people don't realize that that you were almost forty when you made your first uh, feature. And 39. I, I my, the film went out when I was forty. Yeah, the du- the duelist. So, um, so you were you were kind of laying the groundwork though for it for a long time before that. What were you up to? I was doing uh, quite success. BBC three years mm-hmm. straight after college, um, designing mm-hmm. for sets and things like that. And I think I was such a nuisance that I was criticizing directors that they eventually gave me a production course at BBC <laughs> to get them off get me off their back. <clears throat> From that production course, I got a show. I did live TV for about two years. Then I discovered that on the side, there was this growing industry called commercial advertising. And the the competitive television companies where you read a fusion, fundamentally commercial TV. Mm-hmm. And I suddenly realized that they paid very well. <laughs> so I went for commercial advertising. Right. And I was in it very, very, very successfully till I was, I still am. Yes, yes. Yeah, and so in the years that I, I was doing advertising personally, commercial for about almost twenty years. That was my film school. It's amazing, and it really. I, I want to ask you because it seems like there were a number of, of particularly British filmmakers. Some of them that you work, who you worked with at Ridley Scott Associates, and then yeah. also others where yeah. people came out of that, out of commercial advertising, and became the next generation of top filmmakers. Sure. Why did that prepare you well? To be a, well, a feature at the film. time, there was uh, my main competitor would be uh, Adrian Lyne, yeah, Alan Parker. Mm-hmm. My brother's six years younger, and then my brother came through from college. I said, "Don't go to work, come with me." Mm. And uh, so he became part of the company. And then my partner, Hugh Hudson, was in the company. Mm-hmm. He while he was in the company, he got Chariots of Fire, mm. did Greystoke, um, and me not while well, I'm sitting there not making a movie, so I'm going nuts. <laughs> And I'm the one with the business. Right, I'm right. the only one not making movies. And uh, so we started a television company with my brother and I called Scott Free. And uh, we kicked off from there. I, the person in Scott Free found a, a sketch novel, novella, uh, which was called The Duelists. Mm-hmm. And from that, uh, I decided to do the Napoleonic story first and foremost. Uh, without realizing that really people didn't really want to watch Napoleonic films at that point, <laughs> uh, but that was my that was my break in. Now, so. was the goal even when you were 
working at the BBC when you were doing commercials was the ultimate ambition always to make narrative films? Long form, yeah. Yeah. I mean, lo- yes, uh, feature film was always my, uh, yes, target mm-hmm. dream. I knew I was going to get there one way or the other because uh, you've just got to go for it. And by then I was making enough, I was successful enough to start paying writers. Mm. And so I was able to choose my material, get it written, then go and sell it. And then even largely my first film, I was a completion bond and I never got paid. Mm. So when they moan about saying, gee, I can't get going, da, 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 I say, get a digital camera today. There's no excuse not to go out and make a movie this weekend. Right. That's what I always say to students. Mm. Who go, send, give me a movie. I said, no, you find your story. You go and make it. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people, I think, perhaps or perhaps wonder, what was what were they feeding you in the Scott household to produce two really talented filmmakers? And it sounds to me, from what I've read, that you were the one that kind of pulled your brother in, not only with advertising, but uh, just... All along the way, it sounded like he was maybe at one time going to go off and be a documentary filmmaker, different yeah. things. You, how did it come to be that you were both uh, very... Well, I'm the uh, I'm six years older. My elder brother, uh, to me, was three years older than I. He mm-hmm. went to sea, mm-hmm. was a captain, South China Sea, sending for a Chinese company. Then did Shanghai to Australia and Singapore for like 20 years. Uh, Tony was six years younger than I. He watched me enjoy and that's an understatement I hated school I adored art school mm. and I got did very well if you adore anything you tend to do well mm-hmm. and I did got the Royal College of Art which is very that's more literally I would say the top mm-hmm. in the world today mm-hmm. um, and Tony watched this and simply decided to follow through and with I of course I encouraged him saying listen I'm enjoying myself I adore the job, and I, you know, live, eat, and sleep it. And one day uh, I will make a film. And f- uh, funny enough, I made a when I finished the Royal College, I made a little movie on a Bolex, a clockwork camera, called Boy in a Bicycle. I had to write the screenplay to get the camera. There was no film school. Mm-hmm. In there was a, in a steel cupboard with a, a there was a, a light meter. I think a Sikonic Brockway, first of the. Korean light, I think a light meter, mm. and there was a German, beautiful little German camera called a Bolex, mm. and with six rotating turrets with little teeny lenses. Mm. And to get it, the the tutor said, "If you want it, you got to write a screenplay." <laughs> so I wrote the screenplay, which was hard work. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. Gave me the camera, and I went off some holidays up to the northeast of England, where I was, my parents were, and where I was living. And said to Tony, you're on camera, you're going to carry equipment, and we're going to get up every morning about 6 o'clock, because Dad's given us the car, and I will be driving, and you and I are going to make a movie. And that six weeks it took to do it, where he was shifted from objecting to everything, because I was ruining his summer holiday, Yeah, right, right. to miserable, to, you know, uh, gradually it was sinking in. He got the point. I think he loved the order of what was happening so when I was able to show it to him because he's on camera that's him mm-hmm. uh, he was kind of blown away and as far as his involvement at Ridley Scott Associates I had heard a funny story where uh, was did you tell him you, you could guarantee he'd be able to afford a Ferrari or something well, at that time his <laughs> wife God bless her said I want our Tony to do a doc- documentary said dear with the greatest respect to documentary filmmakers and God bless him I used to work for Ron Don. 
Penny Beck and Richard Depot. Ah, yeah, you did? Oh, yeah, that was my first job. Oh, my I, God. I was getting hamburgers, right? <laughs> and um, I said, if you come with me, I guarantee you get a Ferrari. And you had a Ferrari by the time you was 30. That's fantastic. <laughs> now, um, you're you're from going from the Duelist, which was a, a low, relatively low budget, right, production? Oh, it was under a million dollars. Okay, so oh, and so well received, can yes. award and all that. Mm-hmm. But then to go from that to your second film, Alien, mm-hmm. was that a was that a big noticeable jump? Did you feel ready for that? You know, uh, by the time I did the Duelist, I'd done probably two thousand commercials, mm-hmm. and I'd still do more while I was doing feature films. I didn't do. I did Steve Jobs commercial in 1984 where we announced Apple. That was mine. So I was still doing commercials even well in beyond Blade Runner, wow. Legend, da-da-da-da. So I would always, I'd have to show my hand because I had a stable of, very groomed stable of, of, of uh, commercial film directors mm-hmm. who were all kind of red hot. Mm-hmm. And you got to go in there, you got to play the ball. Mm-hmm. So I was constantly having to show my hand and play the ball. I really enjoyed doing it. Mm-hmm. But um, from getting the prize at Cannes, some clever person uh, saw the, the film at Cannes and said, uh, a person from Fox, I think I, I, I think I know who it was, mm-hmm. said, you should see this film. It's kind of special. And we've been looking for a director for Alien. I was fifth choice. I think I was just behind Robert Altman, who looked at it, obviously said, what is not for me, dude? This thing coming out of his chest, get out of here. Right. And I was more art directory right. oriented and knew about, right. at that moment, heavy metal and metal. French comic strip called Metal Hurlant, or mm-hmm. Heavy Metal. Uh, Jean Giraud Mobius and people like that who were great, great comic strip artists. And I said, I know what to do, I'll do this. So I was away and running. And and it was a, it, it sounds a shock. It was a bit of a shock that that came, because I was vaguely thinking about science fiction because I'd seen George Lucas's Star Wars that he did like which two I years. Thought was, I thought it was seminal. Yeah, and seminal. it really influenced your. Oh, blew me away. I stopped doing what I was going to do. I was going to do Tristan the Soul, mm-hmm. which is kind of extremely highbrow, because mm-hmm. uh, I just finished the Duelist and I loved where I was shooting. It was in the mm-hmm. middle of France. Yeah. I was going to back then down there and do. Uh, Tristan de Sol, that David Putnam, who was my producer, now Lord Putnam, <laughs> said, come and have a look at this film that George did. I think it's going to affect you. And I went, it, it completely affected me. Amazing. I just said, I cannot go and do Tristan de Sol. I've got to do something else. Now, even prior to that, I have. I wonder, because of Alien, because of Prometheus, because of now The Martian, uh, it seems like space is something that interests you. Was that something that predated even uh, Star Wars? Only because of Stanley Kubrick. There's always some milestone mm-hmm. that, you know, gongs you and you go blind. Uh, uh, I w- watched 2001 in the o- opening week. Cause I was working at Rediffusion down the road in the Oldwich in London. Mm-hmm. And there was a theater, which is a running 70 millimeter. Ah, so uh, I walked up yeah. that week and the theater was empty. And I watched 2001 in a brand new print. That blew me away forever. Now, Stanley had been working very closely with NASA. I think, in fact, he was in a race with NASA. Wow. I think he wanted to get his out before NASA did <laughs> before the moon. The, right. <laughs> and so he was... And he did, right? He did. Yeah. So he was hiring a guy called McCall, who was doing all the design work for NASA. So there was a com- competition. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so 
how did the the great success of Alien actually change things for you? Was there an immediate? Uh, was it? A, it just must have changed things probably immediately, right? Um, I think it uh, it, it did uh, because the film was so the reaction was huge, and and I think at that point um, I learned you can wait too long. I I pondered on what to do next. And by pondering, it almost cost me two years before I went back and did Blade Runner. Wow. And and that was a very different experience for you, right? It was not as no. uh, pleasant. It was... Um, I'd been visited on the mix when I was mixing Bla- uh, Alien by Michael Dealey mm-hmm. to say, look, we've got this subject. Um, I think Alien's going to be big. Um, what do you think? Read this. Written by Hampton Fanshawe. It's called Do Under a Dream of Electric Sheep. And I read it and thought, it, I've just done science fiction. I don't don't want to do another one immediately. And frankly, the experience of Alien was pretty tough in terms of the the blood and the gore and the. I, I was very affected by doing it. It was kind of, I felt pretty negative. I mean, you know, for me to do it, it was mm-hmm. tough. And um, I decided to um, not do. Blade Runner, because Blade Runner was dark. I thought about it for 18 months and read scripts that came in and continued doing commercials. Mm-hmm. And then you know, eventually called back saying, you know, this thing still stays with me. I'd like to meet the writer. I came in, and the rest was we worked with Hampton Fancher for almost five months, re-expanding the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then we got the film financed, and away I went. Um, but that was, that was, a, that was my first realization you can't pause you can ponder way too long you just got to get on with it it's only a movie and then the from my understanding it was also the maybe it was during post-production i I would i guess is when it became apparent that you also unless you assert or or demand your independence people will try to uh kind of uh take advantage of of you right uh yeah but you know at that point everyone's just trying to do their job Mm -hmm. and they and because I was the new kid on the block in Hollywood and I was driving through the studio gates for the first time in my life thinking, wow, this is great. Um, and because at that moment I'm now 41, 42, mm-hmm. uh, I'm a businessman. So when I'm being told this and that and that and I'm watching organization, which was less than good, <laughs> uh, I'm being looked after by people who weren't up to speed with my speed, mm-hmm. I figured that I had to really watch everything. And so I was perceived as being difficult. I wasn't. I was just trying to keep it on track and do what the plan was to do. And that's what came out of it. So I got pretty grumpy. And it was, I mean, just to get to the root of what they're, they were pushing the, the upbeat, a more upbeat ending, right, and a voiceover oh, and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, the film was a film noir, and when somebody says, what do you mean by a film noir, I know that I've got a problem. <laughs> so uh, I said, it's the film noir. You know, it's like Philip Marlowe. Right. Uh, who's Philip Marlowe? Oh, no. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah uh, I think um, it's very new. The script was very different and very new, and the sets that we were doing were actually... Production has Larry Paul, God bless him. Uh, but Sid Mead was the guy who really came in, very worked very much alongside me and Larry because mm-hmm. I'm a designer. Mm-hmm. So it was really the three of us welding this rare 
thing together. Right. And it was rare. I would remember people would visit the set. 300 people would turn up in the evening to see the bloody set, oh which drove me nuts mm. because you're meant to be, you know, and there's friends of friends of friends. I said, who are these people? Mm -hmm. And that, that was all a little bit too much for me at yeah. the time. So I became pretty grumpy. <laughs> but then we put it together mm -hmm. and... Um, I insisted on Vangelis um, and Vangelis and I that was the one time I was left alone I'd go and visit Vangelis in the evening where he had his big kind of shed like studio behind Marble Arch in London and Vangelis is one of those rare commodities artists who will watch the film and say watch this I'm going to cue off I'm going to cue the eight minute break off this off Sean Young's blink <laughs> So he'd start, and I sat there, fully engaged in a rare composer. Wow. That's a rare composer. Yeah. And it, it, you know, we did. I did pretty good with the visuals. Um, yeah. And the story with with Hampton script, uh, but Van Gelis gave us liftoff. Wow. Yeah. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One of the things that people always remark about your films is is how well you and, and how great the performances but also particularly female performances are in your movies um, and I think it expands from Sigourney Weaver through Jessica Chastain and everything in between I just wonder if you can pinpoint why that might be and you know to the extent that people watch Thelma and Louise maybe not the biggest film connoisseurs and they're surprised to find that it's a male director because you so tap yeah. into that so what's what's behind that? I think it's years working with um, in advertising where the people person that tend to be running London and then eventually New York and then eventually LA were all women mm. and fundamentally I found I got on very well with women not because I could dominate but because they were mul good multitaskers I thought that was interesting and because I'm a multitasker mm -hmm. uh, that's what I needed otherwise I can't be constantly ahead of my you know CEO mm -hmm. and drive me crazy okay um and so it came that way, but also came about, I always lay this at the at the foot of my mum, who was a tough, she was tough. <laughs> and she really brought up three boys. And my dad fundamentally loved the army, was in the army for a number of years, which would take us to Germany post-war, five years in Germany post-war. Wow. And that was my education, really. I went to school at Wilhelmshaven, which is the barracks of the U-boat wow. command for the Baltic, so I'd walk past 200 U-boats every morning um, and uh, my dad was a high up in the army so wow. we, en we enjoyed, my education was travel wow. but my mum was the one who was in charge of the she three was, boys, yeah. very much so yeah. Interesting, well um, another thing that I've noticed is that particularly since the late 90s I would say your pace of output has mm -hmm. been unbelievable and I just mm -hmm. wonder and that, so I guess that's kind of right before Gladiator, Black Hawk Down and ever sure. since, sure is there a reason for that? Um, uh, no, I mean, I just, as you get mature, you decide things quicker. 
I made decisions quicker. I would say, I like that, let's do it. Mm-hmm. I would say, I like that and let's think about it. I mm-hmm. never say, let's think about it. I just do it. Right. If it appeals to me, follow your intuition. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, it's a bit like sport. You better, you got no time to think. Tennis, you have no time to right. think. It's all about your intuition. And do you think though that you, I mean, some people, it seems like you almost feed off that. To have, I think in back-to-back years, Gladiator and then Black Hawk Down is unbelievable. Yeah. That's and 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 not not just you know to have any two movies in back to back years is is fairly rare these days. Yeah. But mm-hmm. to have it of that of that caliber, uh, do you yeah. you know as you think back to that specific mm-hmm. those that period of those two was that were you just in a groove or or, or how do you explain it? No, I'm in a groove now. Really, yeah. I mean, I started um, what I'm doing in February already. Mm-hmm. I think what I do learned very early on to acknowledge and embrace what I very much learnt at art school which was I can really really draw mm. so I would draw my own storyboards and it's not a few stick figures This <laughs> uh, the storyboard for Black Hawk Down is this thick right? and every scene where I know I've got to have multiple cameras here because I'm going to plan crossing a street with 16 troops 16 that corner will have 11 cameras with brass flying every f- direction and I still can't hear properly in this ear but I wanted it to be in the field because um, we shot that really quick. We're talking black and by, yeah, yeah, by having 11 cameras, yeah. I can see four here, two here, two there. And I'd tell the actor, during the thing, you're, well, I'm going to say action. We're going to just, this is real war. Yeah. And your camera's over here, your camera's over here, so be aware of that. Wow. And they're shooting 50 cal in AKs. And and that was the other thing that people you know you don't do a lot of takes because you do a lot of coverage, right? Yeah, sure. If you got four cameras, it, it, I don't mean it doesn't mean you're four times faster, but I think you're three times faster. <laughs> um, it, and and it's largely to do with um, my days in live television. Mm. I do a play with six cameras. And the cameras are moving with a wire. And the big, one of your biggest problems is the wire getting one camera getting right, you get a knot. So you've got guys lifting up wires for another ca- camera to yeah. get underneath to get to his next position. So yeah, you've got to predetermine off from your screenplay and literally drawing where you want the shot to be wow. cut. So I mean, you're planning everything. That's sort of a, a, a lost uh, experience now, right? It's unfortunate because. It's a lost you, art. A lost art. I mean, the, the Lumets and people in this country who are doing yeah. it, they've mostly, they're mostly gone. Uh, Lumet dramatically underestimated mm. one of the greats, mm. really. Everything he did was, even yes. his last film was, was special. Yes. Yeah, two brothers, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so why The Martian specifically, and, and you know, what drew you to it, but also why that, why that story and why Matt Damon? Well, I kind of auditioned with Matt Damon. I mean, oh, Matt was already in, but he said, you know, I've just done this film with Chris. Uh, I'm a guy on a planet stuck up there but it's a kind of relatively small part Interesting. Uh, but it's important yeah so I said mm, oh good so and he said you know it's up to you which is that's the way Matt is because mm-hmm. um, he the fact I wanted to do it he really liked that mm-hmm. so um, I asked Chris to show me what was relevant and what was relevant I just took a choice on and said what the what what the hell <laughs> Got to be Matt, and I think it doesn't really matter. No, no. no. Um, and I guess to, to come to speak more generally about your casting process, uh, what 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 do you look? Do you have a, a sort of type of actor that you like working with? How do you choose who you work with? I'm casting 
that said, with a at the moment, I use two very good casting directors: one one lady in Hollywood and one lady in London. Mm-hmm. There you go, it's ladies again. <laughs> um, and um, the process frequently is when I'm reading and I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. Mm-hmm. I'm already as I'm reading, I already know I'm, I want I want to do it. I'm already thinking about people, and then f- and I'm pretty good at making a choice on who it could be. And therefore, what I and they, but they'll be the the forerunners or maybe some relatively important in the field today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sometimes a good thing about a casting director, they will come and say, "Have you thought about this mm-hmm. as well?" So you think, oh, "I hadn't thought about that," mm-hmm. or "I haven't seen her or him really enough." Let me take a look. So mm-hmm. the casting director that make you think twice, and then certainly help in the whole process of all the other members of the cast. Has there been an example that you can think of where a casting director changed your mind on a major part? No. No. Because no. no. mostly they go, yeah, that's a good idea. If we can get them, that's great. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's what usually happens. Then you can get on with everything else. You seem to really like working with actors, and actors, it seems to be mutual. Is that yeah. fair to say? I mean, they just, uh, what, what is it about that uh, collaboration that you, that you like? Um, admiration. I like it. Uh, I, I would never do what they could do. I couldn't do what they do to stand in front and literally, you know, metaphorically, of course, expose yourself mm-hmm. f- fully mm-hmm. and let it all out. Um, is That's tough. Mm. And so because I respect that, um, I make sure that I'm as helpful as possible for every, every, every moment, mm-hmm. which is fundamentally making them feel safe. Mm-hmm. And not at all silly, on and and in the the safer they feel, the the more you're going to get, because they will then open up and try things. So five times with Russell Crowe, yeah. twice I think with Fassbender. Yeah. Um, is it safe to assume that you you and Damon will be working together again? I hope so. Yeah. yeah I mean, it was good fun. It was, I mean, the key is that it's good fun. You know, you've got to have fun in what you do. If you don't do that it gets way too serious right and i think by having f- fun is to me is a heading which constitutes all kinds of things enthusiasm interest passion all those things accumulate to you know uh, you enjoying what you do right. that's it that's essential so i always say to my kids whatever you do just make sure you love what you do mm-hmm. i don't give a shame if you clean windows you're best in the business that's fantastic yeah. <laughs> um and with this one i mean for for you to go through the grind of, like, this one, I think, was shot all over the world. You've yes. got to love I mean, you wouldn't do it if you didn't love it, right? Yeah, I mean, I you these films are larger budgets. This is not inordinate uh, budget in that sense. Pretty, actually, it's a kind of relatively low budget for what the film is. What was it? Can I, do you, is yeah, it out I there? Really, I oh, don't you don't? Really, okay, don't sure. Really but sure. We're, we're kind of low. Yeah. Um, uh, but 72 days shoot, yeah. which is not 100. Right. Not 110. Right. Uh, therefore, I had to go for cash, a tax rebate, uh-huh. and in London I couldn't get into because it was jammed solid because of their tax rebates. Every mm-hmm. of the five studios all solid. Wow. You couldn't even get a crew, wow. which is a tragedy that Hollywood doesn't have a tax rebate. But mm-hmm. I know what I know. It's difficult financially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to. I need stages. I need a big stage like Bond, and I went to brand new stages at Budapest, which were fantastic. Yeah. The big stage there was bigger than the Bond stage, 
with. Had you worked there before? I think never, never, never. But to the gantry was sixty-seven feet, so wow. it's another ten feet higher than Bond, wow. and it's almost a hundred feet wider than Bond. So I'll, I'll, I'm fundamentally in the grand outdoors, standing mm-hmm. in this stage, which was air conditioned and heated. It was fantastic Amazing. and soundproofed um, and new. Mm-hmm. Then. All of it was done there for, with Matt, five weeks there. Mm-hmm. And then I had to finish that off in Jordan mm-hmm. in a place called Wadi Rum. We lived in Aqaba and drove to Wadi Rum every morning, about a 40-minute drive to this majestic desert. It's like Lawrence of Arabia territory, right? That's, That's exactly why I went there, because uh, I always remember it from... Uh, you know, Lawrence and Lawrence shouting Aqaba as he charged at the back <laughs> of the village. Right. That village now is right on the Gulf. It's actually quite a nice holiday resort. <laughs> and so I was, t- I was sitting in a hotel looking into the Gulf and every morning you drive to Aqaba. Wow. And uh, to, to, sorry, to Wadi Rum, and, uh, which is where we'd assembled and put up an, an identical set, mm-hmm. which is the um, habitat that he's living in. Gotcha. Plus two trucks, plus... The, the cradle of the legs were assembled there because mm-hmm. you know when you when a rocket when a sh- rocket from the the um, mothership mm-hmm. which is now put into interlock and mm-hmm. is orbiting mm-hmm. if you're down there for a month that's going to orbit for a month mm-hmm. you're eventually going to have to take off come in plug in plug in walk in let this go off into space mm. and you're going to go back home mm. so when they landed. Uh, the cradle is becomes a cradle because those engines are dead. Mm-hmm. You've got a new set of engines here, so when you hit takeoff, that will go and leave the cradle behind. Gotcha. A lot of waste. Yeah. Um, one of the things that people have, a lot of people have remarked upon who have seen the movie already is that it seems to be, it seems to have a more optimistic, upbeat worldview than, than some of your other films. And I just wonder for... For in spite of obviously the, the dire circumstances at the center, it still yeah. feels that way. Partly, maybe it's the the music, the just the whole. Obviously, the Matt Damon brings a certain uh, outlook mm-hmm. to it. But for you, was is there a reason why you would have had a more um, positive uh, feeling going into this movie? It was all in the script. It's all. In the I script. mean, yeah. The um, you know, Andy, the author, is a, is a funny, funny guy. He's a real pistol, and he actually. Um, really is something of a scientist himself and therefore once he dreamt up this 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 plan which you know in a funny kind of way it's a pretty straightforward good like the base of all freaking good plays or good stories it's very simple mm-hmm. the problem is how does it work and therefore the, he, the fact that the astronaut is able to use his science right. to save himself is terrific and then even better, the science works. Right. So within the working process of the science having to work, there's a lot of laconic humor, and therefore that was all in, in there. In there. And then, but the laconic humor, you know, kind of segues into the right stuff. Don't allow fear into your vision, mm-hmm. otherwise you will not be able to function. So that's really courage under fire. Yeah. And then it, it gradually segues into. By being able to think clearly, connection with Earth, now everybody has to help everybody. Yeah. So that was a nice big message, I yeah. thought. Has there, it's rare to see a movie these days without a, without a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. And, and in this case, it's really just... Uh, the bad guy was, the beautiful monster was Mars. Yeah. That'll kill you in a heartbeat. Right. Um, 
Now, there's been an interesting, it seems like, uh, friendship between you and this film and NASA. Because just to recap for for people who may not have followed, uh, first of all, they're promoting this movie on their website. I believe you've screened it twice for them and even for the International Space Station. Uh, They seem to be very gratified about the, the, the... respectful way it portrays their people and the, and respect for science yeah. um, for you. And then I guess I, there's the story now that, that obviously we've, there's water on Mars apparently. And, and the reports are that, that you were kind of tipped off about this. I knew that about three months, four months, actually about 10 months ago. How did this come about? They just said, you know, we think there's water on Mars. I said, Oh, that's the white stuff. Yeah. So the white stuff are glaciers. And he right. said, then they disappear. I said, they melt. He said, no, it's dust. The dust blows back over them. There's a gentle breeze. The dust does. And because it's no gravity or 40% gravity, the dust will float and settle. So the ever-changing view of what is the white thing. Mm-hmm. And he said, we think they're glaciers. I said, pure water. He said, could be. Microbes in the water? Yeah. Does that mean that's an alien? Well, maybe. You could call it that. Yeah. A microscopic, but does it tell us something about Mars three billion years ago, and was Mars us? So that, to me, is the big warning bell. What did they have to say about that? They just nodded and said, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, well, uh, then the day before we were having the screening at um, in uh, Washington, I was screening at the National Geographic Room with NASA, with four astronauts and mm-hmm. various people who had to do with funding for NASA, a great room and um, there were a lot of interesting speeches very nice speeches fresh enthusiasm mm-hmm. these guys are like schoolboys yeah with a new bag of tricks you know and they are determined they're going to be on Mars by mid 10 years 10 13 years they'll be standing on Mars wow and if if, uh, if one of them said hey we you obviously have a great respect for what we do for Mars you know a great interest in Mars how would you like to be on the first uh, trip? Would would you ever consider that? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, no interest. Are you kidding me? No, I know. I know what can happen. That's why Stanley never flew after doing two thousand one. Is that right? He never flew. I think he even went by boat, cutting two thousand one, crossed the United States by rail to show it to Warner's. That, that's a, a bit of a legend. But uh, he went so much into flying. Yeah. On Strange Club with the B B yes, the bomber. The bomber, yeah. He, went, of course, would go fully into every conceivable possibility about flying and every conceivable possibility about flying in 2001. And he realized that it's, it's bloody dangerous. <laughs> so he, he wouldn't go. Uh, how have the capabilities of technology for what you do uh, changed your job, uh, impacted your job over the years? It's really evolved a lot since, let's say, yeah. Alien. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet you're still interested in as you say buildings uh, you've talked about building sets and things sure. like that. how do you reconcile the new capabilities where you can really do anything with mm-hmm. uh your desire to still be grounded in reality i think the danger is about having green screen you get a generic performance that's what i'm saying that's mm-hmm. and you know the, the skill of these actors is always amazing and can they do a performance against a green screen or facing a green screen? Mm-hmm. Of course they can. Mm-hmm. Would they prefer a real proscenium? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Would they like a set? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would they like to really see the monster? Yep. Yeah. So whatever you can give them uh, to help them through the day is very important. So just to that point, I mean, let's, 
let's talk. I, people I remember seeing around the time of Gladiator. Yeah. There these great. They would show how you part of the stadium or the the forty uh, percent. We built forty percent. It was really built. I mean, it was amazing what you could do digitally to do the rest. But you yeah. didn't. You could have done it with none of that. But you chose. then you would have had a problem. I had to build something. Yeah. And we budget narrowed it down to I needed it for me. Mm-hmm. So 40% was full scale. Mm-hmm. I just lost the tier. There's five stories. Mm-hmm. I did four stories, yeah. full scale. Yeah. And I'd taken the the royal box, which is black marble, mm-hmm. off a painting by Jerome, mm-hmm. which the big paintings in Phoenix Museum now it was 19th century uh, painting, which is almost photographic mm-hmm. in its, its beauty. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Shows... Um, uh, Nero doing that to thumbs down to a ma- what they call an antibati mm-hmm. who's helmeted he's got a tuna fork big tuna fork and a net and he's got a guy netted on the ground he's about to kill him execute him and of course Nero's doing that that's why I took the film on and I, but I love that I thought my god the those painters were fantastic well and I just think you know the reason I bring that example up is I think it's just so illustrative of what you're talking about that there you can you can reconcile the two things the desire to still yeah. be grounded so um has your over over the years uh and through telling these stories about thinking you know speculating about space about the future about whatever has your own outlook uh for the future been impacted i had read one thing where you recently told the new york times you give us as a as a species about a half century and that's it is that well i hate to be negative um but i think when you hear Negotiations are occurring with the Chinese where they plan to reduce the mission by 30% by 2027. My, I go, what? Mm-hmm. Get, what are you doing? Right. What are you talking about? Right. Are you crazy? Mm-hmm. I mean, we are right in the zone. Mm-hmm. And the big question is, have we passed the zone or have we not? Mm-hmm. If we've passed it, it's going to be a matter of time. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be when. It's going to be when, not if. And are we in a when or if situation? That's what my intuition, which I trust, mm-hmm. is to give all the bells are going off. Yeah. You have to go and buy some pine forests in Scotland with global warming. That's the last place to get warm. Uh, well, and it also is not encouraging when you see that uh, a significant number of candidates for the presidency of this country don't even accept the idea of evolution. Forget about the rest of science. No. Or, gl- or climate change. I know. So climate change and saying, well, we have to talk about employment. I said, Dude, <laughs> there will be no employment necessary whatsoever. It'll be guns and horses. Uh, you, you know, it's back to the. You don't want to return to what, what was that film called? The Road. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh my God, the dystop- yeah. real dystopia there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, last couple of things, if I if I may, just one of the things that always has kind of uh, annoyed me about the auteur theory is this idea that the the people who should be held up as auteurs are people with sort of a consistent, as I understand it, consistent style, consistent yeah. uh, approach. And I feel that that undervalues people like yourself who can work and have worked across the genres. It's amazing. You can do a Sword and Sandals you can, movie. You could do a female buddy movie, a war movie, a biblical epic, a sci-fi, uh, a thriller, and now, uh, you know, this, this latest one, The Martian. And it's almost like, there's no way to account for that, according to something like that. What I, I, I suspect you don't spend your days thinking about the auteur theory, but if you take a moment, do you feel that the type of filmmaker that you are is as appreciated as uh, 
as as perhaps others who are consistent with the type I never, of movement. I never think about it. Yeah. It's the next case for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just thrilled about the fact I can function, charge down the road and mm-hmm. go this way, you know. Yeah. I, that's what I like to do. I mean, I'm a, I feel I'm kind of an explorer. Yeah. So I wouldn't go to Mars because I've just been, <laughs> you know. So I got to do go off in space again next time, but this will be much more exotic. Mm-hmm. I will literally go to the home planet of the engineers and find out what that's all about and why would they create such a monster? Mm. For what reason to, and mm-hmm. to what end and for what use? Because I'm still poking around this idea of are we randomly by accident, by biological? Was the Bing Bang accidental or was it designed? Mm-hmm. So it was a big one. Yeah. And, you know, considering 20 years ago I met Carl Sagan, 30 years ago, which was at the end of Alien, we ran Alien, he saw it, he was there. and I, He enjoyed it, but he said, you know, it's not going to be, you know, aliens in my lifetime, your lifetime is just not going to happen. I said, fundamentally, lighten up Carl, it's a movie. And he went, yeah, of course. But then what he did is he then yeah. went off and wrote a fantastic book called A Contact, yeah. which I always thought the ending of the book, with the greatest respect to the film mm-hmm. and the filmmaker, was better mm-hmm. because the book ends with the person being prepared for the arrival, which will not occur for 12 years. In Hollywood filmmaking terms, they say that's a non-event because you're not seeing it. But right. So it would have made it a smaller movie. But it, that was the intelligence of the book and that mm-hmm. Carl saying if they come the speed is inordinate mm-hmm. it's still going to take 12 years to get here so that gives you a massive perspective on time and space wow well the last thing is just uh, you know people are going to see the Martian they're, they're going to I think be very excited about what you're what you are working on next and I've heard all kinds of rumors about additional Prometheus films a sequel to Blade That's Runner it. All it's kind- it. no, it's a pre- I'm producing sequel to Blade Runner, yep. which I spent two and a half years writing with with Hampton Fancher, went back wow. to the source. Wow. Yeah, We came up with a relevant second, uh, a relevant follow-through, yeah. follow-up, uh, very relevant. So it does involve Harrison wow. and I think Ryan Gosling. Oh, that's uh, fantastic. Because yeah. the first one took us, I think, to 2019, right? So we're, yes. we're coming up on... You're probably now looking yeah. at 2030, 2042. Okay. So, yeah. And and then twenty five years later, twenty three, twenty four years later, and you're doing that simul- while simultaneously doing more Prometheus. Yes, I start that filming in end of more end of February, beginning of March in either Aussie or I may go back to Budapest. I don't know yet. And and then lastly, uh, a virtual reality thing in El Chapo. Are yes. those those are both real? Yes. Yeah, that's all happening. I'm wandering around in small rooms, avoiding holes in the ground that aren't there. <laughs> So and not sleeping, it would seem. Yes, this is amazing. Well, it's such a treat to have you. I really appreciate you coming in, and congratulations on a terrific Thank movie. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good questions. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.